0: Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think Podcast. In Hollywood movies, diplomats always get a bad rap. I'm picturing Claude Rains as Mr. Dryden in Lawrence of Arabia, looking as Claude Rains always does, somewhat reptilian as he hunches over a map of the Middle East with General Allenby smirking secretively. Hollywood diplomats are slippery, untrustworthy. More often than not, they turn out to be double agents. On screen, definitive action plays better than careful talk or compromise. This is true of America in general and of our politics in particular. We're just not comfortable with ambiguity. Leave that to the French. Americans are about getting things done. But the geopolitical world is complex and allegedly getting more so every day. Meanwhile, over the last several presidencies, America has quietly been shifting its foreign policy approach from diplomacy to military muscle. With the current president, the gutting of the State Department in favor of the Pentagon is starting to look like Friday the 13th, part whatever. My guest today is investigative journalist and former State Department official Ronan Farrow. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his work in The New Yorker on the Harvey Weinstein Sexual Abuse Scandal. His new book is War on Peace: The End of Diplomacy and the Decline of American Influence. And the title is pretty much self-explanatory. Welcome to Think Again, Rona. Good to be here, Jason. So in some ways, I may be your ideal reader because this these issues are things that I actually don't spend much time thinking about. This is not my area of expertise. And uh, I learned a great deal from your book. Thank you. First of all, it's like it's extremely engagingly written, uh, but not dumbed down at all. But you did help me kind of navigate the thorny complexity of a lot of this.
1: That means a lot. Yeah. It, it was important to me that it read almost like a novel in the sense that it be very character driven because I think. Uh, Often, the best way to understand big, huge, thorny problems is to understand how they echo in the lives of the human beings uh, at the centers of those problems.
0: Yeah, I mean, let's talk about sort of this grand shift that's been going on. Like, to when, in what point in American history do you trace the start of this trend back? I mean, it's become intense lately—very intense. But
1: it's become very intense lately. Uh, we are really slashing and burning the state department under the trump administration in a way that we never have before mass firings deep 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 uh, proposed budget cuts unfilled positions everywhere across the state department back home and then also in embassies around the world just unmanned uh, empty <laughs> embassies and offices uh, that are in charge of some of our most important challenges around the world. But it's it's not without historical precedent. I'm careful not to portray this as a linear trend. Right. You know, I think that this right, has its ups been and up downs. And down, right? Yeah, yeah. But there are examples you can point to. For instance, during the Clinton administration, after the end of the Cold War, you had uh, you know that president coming in with a promise of domestic reinvestment and refocusing, and James Carville saying, you know, it's the economy stupid, and and a very rapid push to eviscerate the state department. And there's a lot of passing the buck when you talk about this with officials from that administration, you know, Madeline Albright is very quick to say, but it was Jesse Helms on the hill, you know, it was Republicans and we couldn't get more spending for the state department because of them and there's some truth to that. You know, you had these isolationists in Congress who really sealed the deal, but there's also some truth to the fact that the Clinton administration pushed for these cuts. And if you look at the comments of the who were advocating for this, like Warren Christopher, Clinton's first Secretary of State, what you see is actually rhetoric very similar to Rex Tillerson's rhetoric. Um, You know, a, a wholesale call for less diplomacy.
0: This is being driven or has been driven at different times to some extent by disengagement, by a turn inward, you know, by isolationism, American isolationism. But it's not as if we've been... Disengaged around the world. We are deeply engaged militarily through the Pentagon and the CIA again and again in complex and extremely fucked up ways all around the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, on, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is the story of the militarization of America's role in the world. Right. Uh, because wherever we have sidelined our diplomats, very often we have given their mandates to soldiers and spies. And I, I say that without any aspersions cast upon soldiers and spies who are brave servicemen and women who we need, you know? But they ideally should do their work in tandem with equally brave civilians and diplomats who are thinking about the long-term strategy rather than just the tactical context of whatever that theater of war is in that time frame.
0: Right. And the way that Richard Holbrook would have seen it, and I guess you agree with this, the State Department should be kind of calling the shots. That or That is... The military should follow the lead of the State Department. I think Richard
1: Holbrook, because he was a massive ego, thought that he should be calling the <laughs> shots always, you know, and, and wanted to be able to command when the bombs drop and thought General Petraeus should be his wingman um, rather than the other way around. And, and Petraeus used to like to call Holbrook his wingman, which infuriated right. him. Um, right,
0: like literally in, <laughs> in the same meeting as you tell the story in the book, right? Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> and... I think that while that was ego-driven, there is a lot of truth to it. Um, and if you look at what made, for instance, the Dayton Peace Accord as successful as it was, despite right. its considerable flaws, um, you know, did end that conflict for a time and save, uh, I would argue, a lot of lives, that was an example of those two assets that America has in terms of its might of military might and persuasion through diplomats working in tandem you know not eclipsing one another but really reinforcing right and holbrook was able to kind of call the shots in terms of threatening military intervention you know in that case in the form of nato strikes and that worked very well so you know i probably would not sign on wholesale to richard holbrook's perspective there but i would say that there is some truth to it and if not Diplomats calling the shots on when we drop the bombs, certainly, I think you need to have equally empowered voices in the policy process from both sides of that equation, um, saying you know uh, on the diplomat's sides, hey, wait a second, maybe let's consider the long term implications of this military intervention
0: and what you're saying is that throughout the book in different ways, is that as the state department gets increasingly gutted and as we withdraw from diplomatic solutions around the world and as career foreign service officers lose their jobs. We're losing a huge amount of expertise, c- complex relationships. We're we're losing things that cannot easily be replaced.
2: I
1: think that you can easily bring in leadership that reprioritizes uh, the kinds of large-scale diplomatic accomplishments that we actually saw when the Obama administration course corrected, in the words of Ben Rhodes, one of the senior officials in this book, and acknowledged that there had been a little bit of a culture of celebrity generals that had taken over the policy process and and, uh, started investing more in the State Department side of things. And, And you saw very rapidly in that case, three, four years down the line, they had the Iran nuclear deal, the thaw in relations with Cuba, the Paris Climate Change Accords. I mean, these are, whatever the controversies that beset them, pretty substantial accomplishments. And I I think you can have that again relatively quickly, history teaches us. But what you can't immediately whip up is a restored workforce at the State Department because we have dried up the flows of talent into that building. You know, people aren't excited about joining the Foreign Service anymore. Um, They're not joining at all more often than not. And what that means is we will not see the ambassadors that are supposed to be coming in now and becoming ambassadors 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line. So right. it's going to take time.
0: You talk a lot about the difference between strategy and tactics and yep. sort of transactional diplomacy, but the, the military engagement, the military relationships are also very transactional, right? In the sense of like, you give me this, we'll give you that. And then it's also focused on short-term tactics about what we need in a region.
1: For sure. It really narrows the aperture of what these relationships are about when it's purely general to general, right? Um, you know, or spy to spy. Those are important professions within the United States government that, you know, should be a part of the conversation and have their own parallel conversations. But when it is the only conversation between nations, and I profile, for instance, you know, Pakistan as a great example of right. a hyper-militarized, very transactional foreign policy relationship, you kind of get into abusive relationships where the United States doesn't really have a lot of leverage over other people because, you um, You know, I think in most of the examples I look at around the world, the threat of just stopping the flow of guns to someone doesn't tend to really have as much of an effect as we would like. Right. (laughs) And sometimes you can't put the genie back in the bottle once you've spent years arming and training someone. And I tell a lot of stories like that, too, including, you know, General Dostum in Afghanistan, who we propped up to go up against the Taliban after 9-11.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about General Dostum. He's he's quite an interesting, he's a colorful guy. Yeah, and you got to spend some time with him, I did. watching him play the ancient. Central Asian steps game of knocking a a goat carcass around? I wish, Jason, I did
1: not attend a match of Buskashi. I apparently have a standing invitation to go to Shebragan, his stronghold in the north of Afghanistan, to watch a game of Buskashi. I suggested that I participate in a game of Buskashi, and he gave me a very skeptical look and said (laughs) I should watch, Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) which I think is probably
1: a fair appraisal of my likelihood to succeed at that game. It's, It's It's Uh, highly athletic. Highly uh, taxing, I get the sense. I mean, it involves uh, arcane rules that have been passed down through sort of Uzbek tradition, allegedly going back to Genghis Khan, who Dostum claims is one of his forebears. And it involves a a whole pack of horses bursting into an arena, um, and you have to kind of toss a headless goat carcass from one person to another (laughs) and try to jockey it from one a marker at one end of the field to another and you know sometimes there's guns involved because they get so rowdy and it's a a rip-roaring good time apparently
0: and that stuff and also his personality makes him sound quite charming in some ways but he's also an extremely bloodthirsty
1: dogged by character. allegations of mass murder um, and I dig into some of those in this book of, you know, did he kill maybe thousands of uh, prisoners of war in the early days after nine eleven?
0: with u s, complicity or at least looking the
1: other way, it seems. That is the question. And there are some new breakthroughs in that respect in this book for the narrow group of uh, human rights activists who still care after two American administrations squashed and censored investigations of this matter and um, led pretty directly to the destruction of evidence because we didn't protect it. Right. Yeah, the there, mass
0: grave was moved, right? Yeah. It it the, the
1: bodies were you know basically right after 9-11, these investigators from Physicians for Human Rights... Including this wonderful doctor Jennifer Leaning, um, who's a Harvard professor, you know, showed up in this obscure patch of desert um, on a tip. This was in the north of Afghanistan in, you know, the first days of 2002. And uh, lo and behold, there's a fresh mass grave of what appear to be thousands of bodies with prayer beads and uh, turbans sticking out of the earth. Um, and they took a bunch of pictures. This coincided with the disappearance of probably thousands of Taliban who surrendered um, and laid down their arms. And, uh, and actually,
0: I should break in here to say for anyone who doesn't know this, that General Dostum is one of several Afghan warlords in what's called the Northern Alliance that the U.S. partnered with against the Taliban.
1: That's right. And one of the swaths of history that I cover in War on Peace is is about that, these know, wild characters that we laid down with during the Cold War because it was expedient against the Soviets and then did so again in the days after 9-11 because it was expedient against the Taliban. And General Dostum is one of these sort of survivors out there in the, you know, theater of war of Afghanistan, which seems to be eternal, where he has turned on every side and betrayed them all and lasted to have the next ally. And um, he was one of the people who, even though he was uh, an anti u s. fighter at at various points, he became one of our allies after nine eleven right. And then that coincided with these prisoners who were actually in his care, disappearing. You know, there was a, a number that were unaccounted for. And, This is an illustration of the lack of accountability in the throes of war. I mean, we don't have exact numbers, so it's all quite murky. But we do have firm documentation that suddenly there was this mass grave. And what followed was really an illustration of the perils of these transactional military relationships with no oversight from civilians, kind of putting it in a strategic context, because... Dostum uh, was an effective avatar in the short term, but he turned out to be part of, I think, a pretty pernicious wave of warlords that we installed into power. By the time I got around to interviewing him a year or two ago, he he was vice president of Afghanistan, right? Um, a position I, he's still kind of clinging to, although he's in exile for the umpteenth time, which happens a lot over there. You know, that really helped to destabilize Afghanistan, that we empowered these guys. And with respect to this grave, It was another casualty because there was all this evidence and human rights activists banging down the doors of the Bush and then the Obama administrations and and nobody wanted to deal with this. You know, I talked to people like Samantha Power, who was, you know, a big human rights advocate um, and really cared about mass atrocity issues and, you know, just did not want to deal with this while we were in government, did not want to particularly address it when I came back and asked her about it for this book. um, You know, someone like Harold Koh, another kind of bleeding heart human rights guy uh, who was a professor of mine at Yale Law, actually. um, Also, you know, now they all kind of say, well, I don't really remember anything about that. But there was a promise of an investigation out of the Obama White House and... It was kept completely secret and kind of pushed under the rug, uh, which had also happened during the Bush administration. And at some point in that process, uh, someone went and excavated those bodies and moved them away to we don't know where. And so we lost the evidence after a few forensic missions that did indeed confirm, like, yeah, there's a huge mass grave here. And Dostum makes some interesting admissions in this book Mm. about the provenance of all that. The question is not, you know, can we avoid complexities entirely? It's what systems are in place to mitigate those risks. And it's pretty clear when you look at the history that having a situation where things are run purely out of the military side um, leads to a lot of these pitfalls and a lot of these relationships where we have very little power and there's very little accountability and where, in fact, we sabotage opportunities for diplomacy that could keep us out of conflicts. And I tell a number of those stories of sabotaging chances to negotiate with the Taliban in Afghanistan, um, which was a controversial idea, but now is much more widely accepted today as people realize, I think, that you're not getting out of Afghanistan without some kind of a political settlement. I talk about how in the Horn of Africa, we were backing warlords in exactly the same way, and we didn't want to interfere with that. So we uh, actively worked against a regional settlement that would have brought in in a, uh, a peacekeeping force. Uh, This happens over and over again. You
0: were very, very young when you first saw some of the consequences of these kind of policies, if I'm not mistaken. Like, how old were you when you were going, you were going on missions to Africa with
1: with your mom? Yeah, I did, you know, I mean, I got to see advocacy she was doing, and then I ended up doing some work with UNICEF separately. And, you know, all of that kind of conspired to give me a pretty, uh, I don't want to say bleak outlook, but certainly a... A sensitivity to just how bad things are in some of these places, and and also um, how U.S. engagement can exacerbate rather than help some of the problems.
0: You start off on humanitarian missions. You still seem to have a very kind of idealistic outlook in terms of pushing for humanitarian ends. Mm-hmm. But you also carefully armed yourself. Maybe not. Maybe it wasn't as you know systematic as it looks, you know, on paper, but I mean, you went to Yale Law School, you then, you know, you did work, how old were you when you started the State Department? With with... 2021. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, you have, you're armed with tools now to actually fight these fights strategically.
1: I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I guess that was the idea. I, I guess, Probably we're all in our careers driven to some extent by some deep-rooted insecurity, or maybe <laughs> maybe I'm just talking about myself. Um, you know, I, for whatever reason, felt very driven to, uh, you know, accomplish as much as I could that hopefully would make a dent in some of these problems that I saw, and I thought that the things you just described would be a means to that end.
0: Well, because sometimes it's very dispiriting to see humanitarian-focused organizations, which no doubt are doing good on the ground, but look from where I'm standing like they are sort of small potatoes in terms of the actual power dynamics that are going on in the world.
1: You know, the the NGO community, non-governmental organizations, brings a ton to the table in terms of capacity, and, you know, they are the layer of implementers that really save lives in humanitarian crises often and undertake you know the most effective examples of development work that we have
0: right and i so and i also don't want to like insult or minimize the work of of anyone no it's but just, i think
1: you're right in that world you know look it's not a a very moneyed universe and it's hard to get the best talent. And I think like diplomacy, no one is in it for riches. People go into that kind of work because they want to make the world a better place. And I think it behooves us all if we pay tribute to and encourage people who want to do that.
0: That brings us to investigative journalism. Obviously, the the Weinstein reporting was a huge professional moment for you, and you've been you've expressed a lot of gratitude to the people that helped you get there. But that was a hard fight for you. You're, you're you know, and I guess I would imagine you're still in it. If not with that, then also with the kind of reporting you're doing on things like the atrocity, you know, the mass grave in Afghanistan, that you're getting a lot of blowback, and that it's a it's an uphill battle.
1: Yeah. I mean, all of these kind of systems and intermediaries that I exposed, um, you know, particularly the ones deployed uh, to attack people who get in the way of these powerful men that I've documented, those are are tough forces to go up against at times.
0: Woodward and Bernstein? Uh,
1: I, I do think in more recent years, you've seen some tangible changes that have been at the heart of why these stories that I've been telling have been able to break through. Um, you know, I, I wish I could take credit for that, but it's the work of a whole community of really excellent reporters and of sources who you know wouldn't stand for silence anymore. And that's not just the accusers of Harvey Weinstein. That you know goes back to the long saga of Cosby's accusers right. and you know, what Gretchen Carlson exposed about Fox and really kind of a progression in recent years of people chipping away at the culture of silence.
0: And yet we still have a president who everyone has heard on tape saying the things that he said, and he is still the president. And this investigation is ongoing and we see people falling bit by bit around him, but we don't, we don't yet see any meaningful Damaged.
1: It's obviously it's not the job of, you know, me or any other reporter to damage the president or or anyone else. You know, I, I really I go into this to expose stories that are, if I'm doing my job, right, truthful and meticulously told. And you know, the same is true of the political reporting I've been doing on the Trump administration. It's really it's about the systems and the transactions and it's up to others to care about how or whether that moves the needle. I I do think you're right to point out that we're living in this moment where, you know, we have a a unique president who is a product of a unique moment in American media and politics. And, you know, the polarization that we see and the siloing of news we consume, uh, you know, where we each live in our own little bubble of either liberal or conservative media um, in you know, talk, radio or television, or algorithmically selected stories that agree with us when we boot up Facebook. and you know, it's not the job of reporters to unite people, but uh, there are fundamental problems in the landscape that I think have been exploited for political gain in recent years
0: for many of us, and i don't I don't know that this just reflects living in a Media bubble. For many even moderate people, we smell a rat, as it were. I mean, you you're in the business of tracking down facts and verifying sources, and you know so should we but all. I, but be, I but think but the like, problem
1: that you describe, where you know, you, as as you charge, you know, th- we have a a guy in office now who said these things on tape, and it's known, but it it doesn't make a dent, it speaks to the dynamics I'm talking about where. You know, regardless of the veracity of the reporting, and it's really important that there's all of these great reporters doing all this great work right now. But there's a problem with the delivery mechanism where there are these barriers to getting to whole swaths of the American public because there is such profound siloing and segmenting. Right. Winning the hearts and minds. Well, or even just disseminating the truth. (laughs) Look, there's a (laughs) lot of forces fighting for accountability in all sorts of branches of criminal justice and politics and certainly journalism, which is the one I can speak to.
0: Okay. I think this is a good point for us to shift to the second half of the show where we're going to watch two surprise clips from Big Things Archives and discuss them. So the first clip is from Heather Haying, self-described professor in exile, and it's called Why Unintelligent Protest May Kill Democracy.
2: You know, protest is old and is honorable and is important. We must be allowed in any system that calls itself democratic to to dissent. Increasingly, we have we have groups who are claiming to be emerging from this. this Age-old culture of protest, who are actually tamping out dissent, who are saying there are things that cannot be said, there are things that cannot be thought, there are research programs that cannot be done, and that's dangerous. And it comes from a place of fear, and fear is very powerful evolutionarily. It uh, it rises to the top of the emotions when it shows up, and it's hard to get through the fear with an argument that is rational, right? Emotion and rationality don't tend to interface with one another very well. And some of the language that we're hearing from um, from the extremes on both sides of the political spectrum—I'm not sure that um, calling it a spectrum is really apt, but um, everyone's familiar with it. So the extremes on the right and on the left are both using fear to further polarize people. and. Um, You know, the people on the right are easy, the people on the far right, the extremists on the right are both, I think, a smaller group and better armed and thus in some ways more terrifying, but there are so many fewer of them that they don't seem to have as much voice in society as the growing numbers of extremists on the left who are using words and increasingly, in the case of some of the the groups, um, violent tactics, uh, but they don't they don't tend to be armed in the way the extreme right is, and so it's easy for people to imagine that they're not as dangerous. But shutting down dissent, shutting down the ability to discuss ideas, is actually the beginning of the death of democracy.
1: I mean, of course, I agree with each and every one of the broad generalizations <laughs> yeah. given there. And then you start to get into what are clearly sort of um, mealy-mouthed allusions to specifics with a reluctance to actually talk about them. I don't know who that individual is.
0: With the moniker Professor in Exile, I'm guessing that whatever she was <laughs> teaching was unpopular on a certain campus. Like, right, like and and I do
1: think the, the, you know, look, the hyper-PC pushback against professors uh, saying things that ignite sensitivities but don't have any deleterious impact on anyone. Uh, there's very fair criticisms about that out there but sort of when you start to talk about allegedly violent activities by groups of one party or another uh, right, without right. getting into the evidence base for that, you know I, I can't speak to that.
0: No, I mean it's. It makes me think of some of the right-leaning backlash against Black Lives Matter, arguing sure, that it exactly. was like a terrorist organization. Right, that, which that's clearly why I want to be careful like,
1: because, you know, I come at this stuff as a reporter, and clearly, in some cases, like the ones you describe, mm-hmm. uh, this argument of there's violent left-wing protesters didn't actually square with the facts. I think the moment it does square with the facts, we want to be concerned about that. But I don't, yeah, yeah, sure. know that there are facts supporting what she's saying in the way that she's saying it.
0: I'm I mean what's interesting to me here, I mean, to go in a slightly different tack though, is that the way that protest movements seem to emerge at this point, and I think we can put Me Too there as well to a certain extent. I'm interested in the way that they flare up. They become they have this sort of moment. And maybe what we're seeing is that they then sort of morph into a new form, you know, or but it seems different from, say, the protests against the Vietnam War that become long and drawn out because of the speed of social media, because of the kind of instantaneousness of hashtags and and that sort of thing. One wonders, like I don't know. It just seems to have a different character, you know?
1: Sure. I mean, I'm very inspired by a lot of activism that happens today in terms of the contours of how activism looks different today than it did historically. You know, I'm not an expert on that. Um, I'm not a protester. Uh, I'm a reporter.
0: I know, but you're a smart person. I'm just wondering if you'd be interested in commenting on sort of like how, on this change in the dynamics. Well, I, I what I think I'm talking the about changes sort of in the media landscape scale. that yeah. we
1: described earlier, you know, the, the fact that there are more platforms than before and it's become more democratized and there's a lot of ways to get your story out has certainly changed protest and um, there's a much more level playing field in terms of the access to public discourse that uh, disempowered and vulnerable people have. And I think largely those are changes for the better. We still have a long way to go. But yes, obviously it's
0: beneficial that people who had previously didn't have a voice or didn't have a platform like now have it. I guess what I'm driving at is whether whether there's something counterproductive in the faddish way, these things become visible because of the nature of sm- social media that causes them to then sort of rise and fall, well, what and not re- What are you
1: referring to? What is the faddish protest that you
2: take issue?
0: Well, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about Occupy Wall Street, which I think probably had a lot of useful ideas, mm-hmm. I think, associated with Occupy Wall Street. I'm wondering whether it didn't have the impact or sort of the longevity that it might have had, in a sense, because it emerged in this sort of instantaneous culture of Twitter. I mean, that's that's just what I'm... But you look at
1: that moment in history and, you know, in a very short span of time, there was the Arab Spring and Occupy Wall Street and, you know, a whole lot of calls for accountability and social change with a whole lot of positive and negative repercussions. Um, And I I actually think that that probably would strike me as a moment that had a pretty considerable amount of impact.
0: So I think that this would be a good place then. Let's let's go to the second of the two videos. Great. This is... Barry Posen, a professor at MIT, and the video is called What Does America Do With Its $70 Billion Intelligence Budget?
3: My impression is we pretty much spy on everything, given the chance, right? Friends, enemies, whomever. During the peak of our 9-11 anger and hurt, we spied on ourselves, right? And we spied on ourselves without really sorting out the legal ramifications of it. We collected vast amounts of metadata, stored it. This is spying on Americans. right? Now, we're doing a little bit less of it now, but it's not very hard for an American who has friends abroad to get caught up in surveillance. right? There's just a lot of collection. A lot of collection. Right? And a lot of this information is stored so that if something happens, the IC, using fancy algorithms, can backtrack communications among individuals to figure out was implicated and who knew who right if you have the big library and you have the guilty party you can then reverse engineer to try and figure out who else was implicated it doesn't prevent the terrorist attack but it does allow you to prosecute the group but all the rest of us end up compromising our privacy for this purpose
1: At a broad level, the rise of the national security state since 9-11 has been a pivotal part of the story of diplomats being forced out of the room. And at a narrower level, the rise of the surveillance state and of signals intelligence has been a crucial part of the story I tell in War on Peace of the changing and diminishing role of diplomacy and what we do around the world. So I'll give you an example. Right. Um, you know, I tell the story of Robin Raefel, who was a career diplomat um, and had been in the foreign service for decades and decades, and. Served in all these different posts and ambassadorships and dangerous places and um, had some early experiences in Pakistan and knew that country really well, had a deep network of social connections there. And during the Obama administration, she went out to supervise the flow of assistance there. And I tell the story of how I met her in Islamabad and we kind of clashed and I found her very difficult and she found me very annoying Um, and fair enough. she then became front page news in a way that i think no one expected which was she was caught up a few years after that in a, a really colorful espionage case right where the fbi thought that she was leaking classified american intelligence to the pakistanis and the reason for that was that you know some guys at the nsa listening to that signals intelligence you know the monitoring of these calls of foreign officials picked up on her conversations with some of those Pakistanis. Right. And particularly an official named Malia Lodi, who had kind of had murky motivations and they were watching. And they heard Robin Rafel saying, you know, what people say at dinner tables in Islamabad about American drone strikes and pressure on the Pakistani nuclear program and concerns about that, trying as diplomats do to ferret out information and build confidences. Right. And for a young person raised in the age of surveillance and spycraft and warcraft, and much less in the age of diplomacy, that all seemed very strange. And it got flagged, and the FBI got involved, and before you knew it, Robin Raefel found her house being raided and you know documents being carted out of her basement, and right. her security clearance was revoked. And she was kicked out of the State Department unceremoniously after a long career. And she ended up with tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees, you know, on a career diplomat's budget and a public humiliation on the front page of every newspaper in the country. Which makes it difficult to get other work as well. And her (laughs) security clearance was suspended. And in policy circles, where do you go when you've lost everything like that? And so I thought she was an interesting lens through which to view just how profoundly misunderstood this work is and how little place it has in this modern surveillance age if we don't update our understanding of it and overcome some of the misperceptions. In fact, it's worth noting what Robin Rafel was doing was really important to American national security. That was right. happening at a time in our relationship with Pakistan where we didn't have people with that deep understanding of the cultural context and that extensive Rolodex and the ability to call people and have frank conversations about what was happening there politically. You know, she was tasked by her boss um, on the same Afghanistan-Pakistan unit that that I was on to ferret out whether a coup was going to happen and what was happening in terms of the power dynamic between the civilians and the military leadership. There are things that we need to know for our national security and that she was a very useful interlocutor for. And there just is not a system that's hospitable to that kind of work anymore. Those charges were dropped in the end. You know, she was, in a sense, cleared. But what happens, unfortunately, when you get, quote unquote, cleared of this sort of stuff is they just sort of, they They're as quiet about it as possible. The charges go away, but the humiliation stays. You know, she doesn't get that career back. Right, and the financial impact and everything else. Yeah, exactly.
0: The business of the CIA, when it isn't about surveillance, was about spying, building confidence, you know, going into other... So from their perspective, talking with the potential enemy in ambiguous ways looks like spying. Right. It looks like what they recognize as... Being a double agent,
1: and you know, there was a real push after the Snowden business to find these kinds of moles, and they they wanted a a victory at in the intelligence community, and more moreover at the FBI when they put FBI folks on this. So.
0: But it's also about this sort of the left hand not talking to the right hand, and just this this Very long much so. history of animosity between departments in the U.S. government. I mean, do you see any kind of hope for any sort of broad systemic solution to those disconnects that we have within our own government? Is that just like in the nature of having different departments that they're in competition and then, you know... To an extent, but I
1: think it's exacerbated by the trend that I describe in War on Peace. You know, we have so disempowered and denigrated our diplomats that they really don't have a place in the conversation and you don't have... What I think you should have, and we have had, when we have effective diplomacy and even effective military uh, interventions that have a diplomatic component, you know, to build a follow-on strategy, which is a, a more even balance and voices from both sides in the room. And I think if you have that, it's not that the relationship between different branches of the U.S. government and different players within the executive branch will be easy or simple, but at least they'll all be participating. Right and. I think what happened to Robin Raefel is very much a product of diplomats not being seen or heard or understood.
0: And as a final kind of tagline on on all this, what do you think is the most likely way that we would screw up the arrangement with North Korea? There's a whole
1: lot of ways we can screw (laughs) up North Korea right now. I and everyone else on the planet profoundly hopes that this idea of Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un works. It may well look good in the short term. It may even work in the long run. However, time will tell. And there are a lot of pitfalls there. And they've lied to us on these things before, and there's a real risk that you legitimize them as a nuclear power, and you get played badly um, with potentially disastrous effects for the world. So we have to be careful, and ideally we have to have a core of experts guiding that process, and we just don't right now. We don't have the North Korea experts anymore. We don't have them at the State Department. They're not in the policy process. We are flying blind.
0: Do you think if he brings Dennis Rodman with him, it would be better? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, look, it seems like that he is uh, a guy with the, the ears of the leadership there. <clears throat> so who am I to say?
0: Ronan Farrow, thank you so thank much you, for Jason. your time. This was great. And, uh, and Ronan's new book is War on Peace, The End of Diplomacy and the Decline of American Influence. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jason. And that wraps up this week's episode of Think Again. This conversation was part of a double header. I also taped that same day with the former finance minister of Greece, Yanis Varoufakis. If you want to continue the conversation, you want to join us uh, for some informal intellectual discussion, find us on Facebook at Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I'll be back next week with something completely different. Hope you can join us.